Hello and welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about the poetry of N. Heydwana. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Sophus Hell, a writer, translator, and cultural historian who is a regular contributor to Danish newspapers. His brand new book is N. Heydwana, The Complete Poems of the World's First Author. And you can learn more about him and his work at his website, sophushell.com, which is spelled S-O-P-H-U-S-H-E-L-L-E dot com. He joins us by Zoom from Berlin as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station WRFH in Michigan. Sophus, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for having me. Why is the poetry of Enheduana a great book? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that, and I think uh, we can't get around the fact that one of those reasons is that Inhidwana holds this very special place in literary history. She marks the beginning of authorship in a very real way. With Inhidwana's poems, we see the first time that we can link uh, a poem to a person we can identify in the historical record. But quite aside from that, they're also just great poems. They have a particularly impressive use of metaphor and these very striking images that are used to describe the might of the goddess Inanna. Um, And they're also very self-reflexive poetry. Uh, These are poems that think about what poetry does, how it works, uh, how it acts in the world. So those are some of the reasons uh, that make this poetry uh, great literature. We're going to talk about all that, the content of these poems, the context in which they arose. But I want to start off with the fact that she is, as you say in the subtitle of your new book, the world's first author. She's the first author whose name we know. So first of all, Sophus, how do we know that much? How do we know her name? Well, I mean, I think it's also worth just saying that this is the first uh, poetry where we can link it to to an author, as I said, but it's far from the first poetry. Um, there are texts and poems and stories that are much, much older than her. And like in Hidwana, it's a staggeringly long time ago. Like uh, we go back to the 23rd century BCE, but even she has literary precursors. It's just that all of that literature that comes before her is, is anonymous. But in Hidwana's name is part and parcel of the poem themselves. She appears in two of them as a uh, the main one of the main characters of the poems. Um, however, there is a good deal of debate, and we might get to that later, about whether the historical person in Hidwana, who we know to have existed, is the same as the author and the narrator of these poems, or whether they were written after her death in her name, sort of like in the, the equivalent of like ancient historical fiction, that kind of thing. But in Hidwana, we know to have been a real person, in part because she was the daughter of the Emperor Sagan, who in the 21st century BCE created the world's first empire and installed his daughter as high priestess uh, in the city of Ur. And we have some of her servants who have left behind cylinder seals inscribed with her name, you know, saying, oh, I am the servant of Inhidwana. And uh, these seals are like ancient form of of, uh, identity. So it's kind of like the ancient equivalent of having a signature and people would have on these seals their profession. And so we know from these seals that she's a real historical person. And she also left behind an inscription from her own time uh, in which she shows herself performing an offering, that she's a real historical person. And then we have these poems from a later period in which she appears as narrator and as author. Well, let's jump into that question of authorship right now. Do you think she's the actual author of these poems or is she a character only? 
Well, it's a really good question. And scholars have debated this for, you know, now some 50 years. And the, the short answer is that we don't really know. But you're also asking my opinion. I think probably what happened is that Inhidwana wrote something and that then something was revised and rewritten and expanded over the next centuries. She dies sometimes around 2200 BCE. And the earliest manuscripts of her poem are from 500 years later. And that's not in itself unusual because the manuscripts come from a period which we call the old Babylonian period where almost all our knowledge of Sumerian literature comes from. So we have this explosion of manuscripts in the 1740s BCE. So it's quite normal like it's not in itself uh, let's say alarming uh, that we know this poems from from this later period. That's that's quite standard. But we don't know again how much happened <laughs> in those 500 years. But either way she is an incredibly interesting historical character and as I like to say authorship is born with her regardless of the accuracy of these attributions, because the very idea that you can attribute a poem to a single identifiable person, that idea is born with in Hidwana. And what's the significance of that, this idea of authorship, the concept that there is a person behind the words? Well, it makes her literature a lot more personal. And like, um, you really read these poems as a, a very personal tale of, of her particular plight. Um, you really get drawn into the drama of her facing off this rebellion that tries to exile her from her city, um, and cast her out from being high priestess. So she's forced to wander the thorns of foreign lands and so on and so forth. Uh, it makes the more general genre in which she writes, which is uh, the genre of hymns that are addressed to the goddess. It gives it a lot of of, of drama, a lot of personal flair that it ties up to her um, specifically. And also she is just such an interesting figure. She lived at such an uh, interesting moment in time. So the, uh, the figure of the author really anchors her during this dramatic period in which she lived. But also more generally, like it is a, it is a huge shift in the history of literature. Literature goes from being seen as something that is part of a collective tradition and that is owned by, by everybody who participates in that collective tradition to some Something that is the creation of, of a single people. Uh, and that's that notion of authorship is with us to this day. That's still how we see authors today. She wrote in Sumerian, and Sumeria is the first or one of the first civilizations we often hear about. She lived in the city of Ur, as you mentioned, modern-day Iraq, more than 4,000 years ago. What's the significance of her as a Sumerian. What was that civilization like? How do we learn about it through her words? Well, it's interesting to think of her as Sumerian because she both is and isn't Sumerian. So this is a period in time where um, the area that we would now call southern Iraq is uh, characterized by two languages that are intermingling. There is Sumerian and there is Akkadian. And Akkadian is a Semitic language, which means it's a lot like Arabic and Hebrew and so on and so forth. And Sumerian is what we call an isolate, meaning that it's like nothing at all. It's an extremely odd and interesting language that really is like like nothing else in a very real way. Uh, and in Hidwana's uh, father, uh, I mentioned him earlier, King Sagan, he unites what had previously been a, a set of independent city-states to create this empire. And before Sargon, um, Sumerian and Akkadian were, were somewhat on equal footing, but, but Sargon introduces Akkadian as a um, state language, and that sets in motion a slow decline of the Sumerian language. So 
it eventually dies out um, and Akkadian um, becomes the, the language that people speak. And Akkadian then um, morphs into, among other things, uh, the Babylonian language and the Assyrian language that we know from later. But so at this time, both languages are existing side by side. And it might be that that in Hidwana um, spoke Akkadian as a mother tongue and then learned Sumerian later, which would make it particularly impressive because these poems are written not just in Sumerian, but these are some of the, they are arguably the pinnacle of Sumerian literature. They really take the Sumerian language and they strain it and they stretch it to to uh, do something entirely new with it to express the power of this goddess that they are um, that they are addressing the goddess Inanna. So in Hidwana exists between two traditions. She is representative of an Akkadian-speaking empire in a city Ur that would have been dominated by by more Sumerian-speaking peoples and peoples who probably resented her presence quite a lot because she was a representative of this new empire. So she's trying to bridge traditions, I think is, is the short way of putting it. Her work comes down to us because of cuneiform writing on clay tablets. Remind us quickly, what is cuneiform? So cuneiform is a writing system, just like our Latin letters. It's the oldest writing system, which means that when writing was invented, it was cuneiform that was invented. It's also one of the longest lasting writing systems. It was created sometimes around 3,500 BC, so more than a thousand years before in Hidwana. Um, and then it continued to be used up until the first century AD. So that's three and a half millennia of use. And cuneiform was mainly used to write these two languages I've been talking about um, Sumerian and Akkadian, though it was also adapted to write a whole host of other languages as well. Cuneiform really is a wonderful writing system. <laughs> it's it's relatively complicated. It's not uh, it's not a walk in the park, but it's really also a very rewarding, very rich writing system that can do all sorts of cool things that we can't with our relatively impoverished alphabetic scripts. And it's it's a gorgeous writing system. It really is. And one of the main features for a historian of cuneiform as a writing system is that it's mostly, not only, but mostly written on clay tablets, as you mentioned. And clay is just the most amazing writing material, in part because it's, you know, so cheap. It's so easy to, you know, you can just literally pick it up from the from the ground, unlike parchment and papyrus, which were very expensive to produce, which, you know, meant that cuneiform could be more widely used. But also clay is just incredibly durable. Like parchment and papyrus don't last very long. Clay is just clay, you know, and that's why we have these texts that are 4,000 years old because clay is so durable as a writing material. So we have so many sources. We have truly an outrageous amount of sources from ancient Iraq. Let's jump into the actual poetry then of Enheduanna. And her best known work is called The Exaltation of Inanna. Takes up about a dozen pages in your book. The lines are really short, but give us an overview. What is this poem like? So I should just say very briefly that the lines are only short in my translation. And that's because I've introduced these line breaks to recreate what I see as like the flow of the poem, because the lines are so tight in Sumerian um, that like when I rendered in the English translation, they became so long and bulky, so I cut them up. Um, uh, but yeah, so you're right, it, the poem consists of 153 lines, and it is the story of how Inhidwana, who is the high priestess of the moon god Nanna in the city of Ur, she is cast into exile.
exile by a rebel named Lugalane. Um, so that's the drama of the poem. And Hidwana has lost her power as high priestess, um, and she is wandering the, the, in, in exile. And she prays to the god that she had served as high priestess, the god Ananda, who is the god of the moon. Um, but he doesn't intervene. He doesn't answer her one way or another. So she feels that she is in limbo as she compares the situation to an open court case that hasn't been resolved one way or the other. And so, in the, her rather desperate situation, she prays instead to the moon god's daughter, Inanna. So, <laughs> the, these gods are easily confused, Nanna and Inanna. But Inanna is the, the focus of this poem and of other poems attributed to in Hidwana as well. And Inanna has another name, maybe a more familiar name, which is Ishtar. Exactly. Exactly. So, Inanna is the Sumerian name and Ishtar is the Akkadian name. And she really is the most spectacular goddess <laughs> that you'll ever hear about. She is really incredible. In some texts, she appears as the goddess of war, in other as the goddess of sex. I think for Inhidwana, she is first and foremost the goddess of change, of transformation, uh, of metamorphosis, of contradiction, of paradox. Uh, that's how she depicts her. She depicts her as a goddess who is always changeable herself and always changing everything around her. And a large part of the appeal of these poems is how beautifully and how powerfully they evoke the power of Inanna, who is this stunning cosmic figure. And I think it's, you know, in, in the poems that are attributed to Inhidwana, she makes Inanna the ruler of the universe. Like, that is what these poems are meant to do. They are meant to take Inanna and put her at the very top of the pantheon, uh, replacing the, the previous rulers of the gods who are these male gods, like the moon god Nanna, but also the god Enlil or the god uh, of the heavens who is An. They are replaced by Inanna, who is this incredibly powerful female force that is at the same time a power of, of chaos and a power of unpredictability. Um, and so in the exaltation, we then get this appeal to Inanna that she may help in Hidwana in her, in her, um, desperate situation as she's in exile. But then the poem sort of starts to alluding to its own breakdown because in Hidwana says that she's losing her eloquence. So she's losing the very power of words that she will need to appeal to Inanna and convince Inanna to help her. And so that's really the drama of the poem. It's a poem about will in Hidwana succeed in composing the hymn that we're actually reading right now uh, and get Inanna to help her. And in the end, she succeeds. So the poem sort of solves its own problem because she finally gets the words out. And those are the words that we're reading. And so Inanna is, is magnified, she's glorified, and she, as we are told in an epilogue, steps in and uh, restores Inhidwana to power. So it's a poem that kind of depicts itself being made and depicts how the poem itself changes the course of history, um, which is part of what I was talking about. Like, it's a poem that's very self-reflective in that sense. There's a striking line in The Exaltation, and I know you like it because you borrow from it for a title <laughs> to an essay in your book. And I should say, your book on the complete poems of the world's first author, you have not only the, the translation of the actual poems, but a, a great introduction and then some essays in the back that help us understand what these poems are. But this is the line, this is the striking line, quote, my honey mouth is full of froth, my soothing words are turned to dust. Why do you like that line? 
I, I I do love it. I really do love it. I think it's such an interesting line, in part because just the the, the metaphor of the the honeyed mouth is such a good description of what these poems feel like in Sumerian. Like I think honey is such a perfect metaphor for in Hidwana's style because honey, on you know, on one hand, it's like it's sweet. It's and these poems are, are beautiful. They really are. They're a pleasure to read. They feel good in one's mouth <laughs> because of their play of sounds and so on and so forth. But there is also something about honey that is so you know viscous and so like thick and that is what these poems are they're incredibly dense and sometimes they can be so dense that they're hard to make sense of because they just pack so much meaning together like you don't want to eat a whole meal of honey and like in a sense like that is what reading these poems is like they're so compact densely layered that it can really be an overwhelming reading experience especially in the Sumerian so that's one of the reasons I like them like this line it's just a good description of what what it feels like to read the poems but also it's in interesting moment in which the poet says this poem that i am writing is is one i'm struggling to write you know um as one of my colleagues put it this is the the first text to contain the depiction of authorship but it's also the first text to contain a depiction of a writer's block uh you know because her honey mouth has turned to frost and overcoming that moment of crisis is what the poem is all about I'm also attracted to this idea, my soothing words are turned to dust. They come to us on clay tablets, which, of course, can break and literally turn to dust. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. What is the history of these poems? I'm a little surprised I've never heard of this author before I saw your book. Did, mm. did, is, there, is there a continuous tradition of people reading and appreciating the poems of Enheduanna, or were they, were they lost and then recovered? Very much the latter. Um, so, Enheduanna lives in this uh, very dramatic historical period that's, you know, this first empire with all this, you know, um, it's such an interesting time where so much is going on, so much, uh, like the world really is growing during this this period and uh, um, it's a period of artistic innovation and technological development and so on and so forth, but also huge social instability and constant revolts and that's when Enheduanna lives and then we get 500 years where we don't really hear much about Enheduanna and then we said, as I said earlier, we get this explosion of manuscripts in what we call the Old Babylonian period, um, where school children are using Enheduanna's poems to learn this language in which they are written, Sumerian, um, which had died out in the intervening centuries. So people are studying Sumerian in school, much like people would study, you know, Latin uh, in, in Europe and even in, in the US. And you can imagine sort of like, this is the ancient equivalent of uh, British school children being made to learn Virgil, because Virgil connotes Latin, but also eloquence and refinement in the same way Enheduanna has that very special place. She is, you know, the, the master of the Sumerian language. So by studying uh, Enheduanna, you will become a cultured person. Um, and that's the sort of status that she has in these, in the old Babylonian schools, as we call them. But then not long after that, there's a change in the curriculum and Enheduanna and other texts are sort of thrown out. So she disappears from, from the memory even even of the of the Babylonians uh, around the middle of the second millennium BCE, so around year 
1500. She sort of disappears from, from the record. And then, you know, she was only rediscovered in the, in the 20th century. I think very fitting for a, an author who lived through so many rebellions herself. The, the first English translation of the poems uh, appeared in 1968 in the middle of the, of the student rebellion. But she's sort of been leading a bit of a quiet life since 1968. Like she is, there have been some meditations of her and some engagement with her, especially in feminist circle and among like people from Iraq who have rediscovered their, their poetic legacy and so on and so forth and their cultural heritage. Um, but not really a lot. And it's only actually within the last couple of years that in Hidwana is really being, uh, rediscovered. And there was a massive change in, in just last year, um, with an exhibition at the Morgan Library in New York that really propelled her to greater fame. I have a, I have, so my colleagues have come up with this great uh, phrase to describe in Hidwana's history, which is that in Hidwana has led three lives. There's first the, the, the first life of the historical person uh, during Sagan's empire. And then there's the second life of her being a literary superstar uh, in these schools. And then there's her third life, which is the current one. And that is really only just beginning now, I think. You make the point in the introduction that since her modern rediscovery during this third life of hers, she's been a victim of academic disputes, these, these complicated scholarly questions overwhelming the literature, and we maybe treated her works more like artifacts than like art. I definitely think that's the case. I definitely think that's an excellent summary of it. And like, <laughs> even in this podcast episode, I, I, I could feel myself wanting to get this question of, did she write the poems? Did she not write the poems? Are they written later in her name? Kind of out of the way, because that is the discussion that has dominated so much of Hidwana's reception in scholarship over the past century. Like that is what people have been talking about when they have been talking about Hidwana. And sure, that's one feature of the poems, but there are so many other interesting things to talk about. And these are literary masterpieces in my mind. They're absolutely stunning works of poetry. And there's so much more to be explored. I've written uh, two books on, on the literature of the ancient Near East, one on Gilgamesh, the Babylonian epic, and one on Enhidwana. And on Gilgamesh, when I was, you know, trying to write about the, the poem, there's so much interesting research that I wanted to summarize and present and, you know, weave together and point to all of the cool people who have done such cool work on Gilgamesh. And it's not like no one has written on Hidwana, and I tried, you know, to integrate as many, uh, as much of existing research as I could in my book, but it's just so much less, <laughs> so much less. There's so much more to be done, and I really feel like within Hidwana, even more so than with Gilgamesh, we're the beginning of a journey of rediscovery and celebration that I'm just very happy to be part of. I'm glad you brought up Gilgamesh because I was wondering about that. In this podcast series, we covered the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's show number 129 in this series. I think that's the oldest, until now, the oldest work we've discussed on the Great Books podcast. Is there any kind of connection between Enhidwana and Gilgamesh, other than the curiosity, they both come from Mesopotamia. I mean, having written a book on both, I am the right person to ask, but I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it, there is no smoking gun. Uh, that's that's the short answer. There is not like a direct connection. Um, both of them have this quality of self-reflexiveness. Both of them spend a lot of time thinking about 
themselves as poems. Um, and that is, I think, what draws me to both of them. Both of them are gorgeous <laughs> as, as poems. But if there is a connection, it's very indirect, as far as I can tell. There isn't like a line that recurs from one and the other. And Gilgamesh's depiction of the same goddess who is, you know, so celebrated by Nhidwana, the goddess Ishtar, as she's called in Gilgamesh. You know, in Gilgamesh, she's treated as this, you know, the laughable character almost. It's, it's really like an anti-Ishtar text. Um, so in that sense, it's the complete opposite. And Gilgamesh is this narrative poem. It's fairly, I would say, jaunty even, like it, it rolls along well, it carries the reader on a journey. Whereas in Hidwana is, again, has this honey-like quality of thunder in the clouds almost, that you're not quite sure what's going on, but something very powerful is going on. In addition to The Exaltation of Inanna, your book on the complete poems of Enidwana, we get the hymn to Inanna. We also get the temple hymns, as you call them. They're, they're 42 odes, a kind of anthology. But, but give us a quick overview then of, of what else besides the exaltation is in your book. Yeah, so besides the exaltation, um, there is, I mean, one of the other great poems that is attributed to Inhidwana is called the Hymn to Inanna. And the exaltation, one of the reasons it's so cool is that it has this long autobiographical element of Inhidwana struggling in exile. And in the hymn, there probably was an autobiographical section, but it's missing. The text is broken at the most frustrating point imaginable. But the hymn is also itself spectacular. And the hymn is even more radical than the exaltation in describing uh, Inanna. And I was saying earlier that Inhidwana depicts this goddess as a goddess of change and contradiction. And we really get that in the hymn with this stunning section in the middle of the poem that lists the goddess's various contradictory attributes. Um, so that's, that's a really wonderful section. Apart from that, uh, there are these temple hymns, which are, let's be honest, a bit more of a challenge for modern readers. <laughs> a hymn is a dead genre by and large and a hymn to a building is a really dead genre but it sort of gives you a tantalizing glimpse of the Sumerian world um, and I think that makes that gives the, the, the temple hymns an almost like uh, ethnographic quality that you sort of get glimpses of these various cities that even in the ancient world were, um, were seen as these like uh, ancient curiosities um, apart from that the book contains uh, an introduction to Enhidwana's world, the life that she, like as much as we can say about the that she led, the historical period in which she uh, lived and how her poems were received. I discussed the main themes of the, uh, of the poems, including uh, questions around power, questions around gender, uh, and so on and so forth. And then I discussed their, their modern reception. If you had asked me who was the world's first author before I'd heard of Enheduan, if you'd asked me that question, I would have said Homer or Hesiod mm. or at least a guy, a man, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yet, now we discover it's a woman, and that's a major point of interest. What are we to make of that? To what extent is this poem female? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I, I, I like the way you phrase it. To what extent is this poem female? I mean, it's, it's not it's not conventionally female. Um, it is a celebration of a very powerful female figure, uh, Inanna. So in that sense, it's like insistently female. But Inanna is not 
a conventional female figure, nor is Inhidwana herself a conventional female figure. Inhidwana was a high priestess, um, and as such, she would have been removed from the normal world of women in the time in which she lived. High priestesses were figures of great political and economic authority, as best as we can tell. There's some debate about that, but I, I really do believe that they're um, figures of, of great power in this period. Um, and uh, high priestesses also were not allowed to have children, and they were not they did not have husbands because they were seen as being married to the God that they served. And so these this framework that would for so many women at the time have determined the course of their life, who was their father, who was their husband, who was their 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 child, uh, well, that doesn't apply to high priestesses because they're not they don't have any kids, they don't have children, um and they're married to a God. <laughs> so their position is enormously different from that of other women. And there is a point in the poem where Inhidwana seems to compare herself to these figures who have some sort of non-binary or gender-bending status, perhaps indicating that she herself is on the margins of, of you know, conventional femininity. Um, so they are figures, like they are poems about what we might call female empowerment, but in a very uh, interesting way. And Inanna is in some sources depicted as like the feminine, the uber-feminine, and in the other texts she is depicted as the opposite of everything that women are supposed to be. So I would say that the poem have an important but ambivalent relation to uh, femininity. How did you discover her? And, and more broadly, how did you get into this kind of literature and become a scholar of it and learn how to read it and translate it? Yeah, <laughs> looking back, I do sometimes wonder at the series of steps that led me here. Um, as for where I discovered in Hidwana, like that was uh, my first year in university studies. She was on the on the curriculum of uh, uh, we were doing, you know, Sumerian literature. She was part of that introduction, and I it was really love at first sight. So when I was asked to write a term paper on the topic of my choice, I chose in Hidwana, and that was you know that was a decade ago. And, and I'm still writing about Inhidwana and thinking about her. And she really has, has fascinated me. And I had, you know, 10 years ago, that same impression that you have now. Like, why have I not heard of this person before? This is such an interesting historical figure with such an amazing body of literature connected to them. How, how did I not know this person already? I think that's the question that, that I still, that I had back then and I still have now. As for how I came to study this, this, this region, like, I think when I was, you know, when I was 17, <laughs> I, I had this idea that I wanted to go as far back in time as possible. And this, you know, period really is where our earliest sources begin. And I think I, I had this illusion, I guess, that by going as far back as possible, I could found something foundational, you know, that like, this is where it begins. <laughs> and, you know, that will tell us something about human history. But of course, when you go, when you like, it's like a receding horizon, the further back you go, the more you realize that there's always more history behind it. Um, and you, you, go, you don't ever get to a place of pure beginning, because there's always more, um, more messy beginnings behind each beginning, and so on and so forth. And so, I didn't really get to that <laughs> oldest possible place that I was dreaming of as a teenager, but I found myself studying these cultures, the Sumerian and the Babylonian, and these literary masterpieces that I really felt have been overlooked and haven't been given their due. 
and all of my work since has been in popularizing and, and bringing them to to the the attention and the fame that I think works like in Hidwana and like Gilgamesh deserve. Your new book, your brand new book, is En Hidwana, the complete poems of the world's first author. It's out from Yale University Press. It has an introduction, it has text, it has essays and notes. What are you trying to accomplish with this volume? I am I'm trying to put in Hidwana at the head of the literary canon. I want in Hidwana to be the the first text that people meet when they start studying literary history um, because she is a chronological beginning and she uh, makes for a great introduction to everything that literature uh, can do at its best. So I think she she belongs in the canon and she belongs in the at the head of the canon. At the head of the canon, the Western canon at least, usually is Homer, sometimes Gilgamesh, mm. but usually Homer, very often Homer. She predates Homer by 1500 years. To what extent is she a part of our cultural inheritance? And by that, I mean, we as Westerners. Is is this work Western in any meaningful way? That's a really good question. And I think different readers will feel differently about that question. I think some readers are really drawn to Hidwana because she represents an alternative to Western literature. And some see in her a continuity to the situation in which they find themselves in. I think with Gilgamesh, there can be all sorts of debates and people can go back and forth about, you know, did Homer read Gilgamesh, basically? <laughs> you can you can ask that question a little more <laughs> with a little more nuance, but that's the basic question, right? Within Hidwana, we can be absolutely certain that that uh, Homer did not read in Hidwana, nor did Sappho read in Hidwana, for that matter. With Gilgamesh, again, people debate, like, what is the exact relation to the Bible? And again, there can be all sorts of arguments about that. But in Hidwana, again, if she had any influence at all on, on uh, let's say, Hebrew literature, then it was through a long series of intermediaries. So in that sense, like, she is so old that the connection to the classics of the Western canon is, is indirect at best if it even exists. So she is really part of a different world. But at the same time, you can really see themes in her poetry that are just as relevant today, uh, in que including questions about the relation between, you know, uh, gender and power, as well as these are poems that are set in a world that's really socially turbulent and that is full of social divisions and social revolt, which is unfortunately also a fair description of the world in which we're living now. And Hidwana lived during a time of huge technological acceleration and huge uh, advances in all sorts of fields, but also a sense of like ongoing disaster um, that, you know, culminated in the collapse of this uh, very uh, short-lived empire that she was part of. And that sense of like things move speedily, but also sometimes things to be going in the wrong direction is I think also one we can uh, unfortunately relate to today. And last but not least, in Hidwana uh, lived during probably a time of, of dramatic climate change, not man-made climate change as we're seeing today, but still changes in the atmosphere that led to things like famine, uh, which again, also unfortunately does seem to be part of, of our historical moment. Um, so there are points of connection to the present, even if she is also um, quite like resolutely outside of the Western canon as we usually understand it. One more question, just sum it all up for us then. What is the case for treating Enheduanna as more than a mere curiosity? What is the case for reading her words now? I think I would just like to end by by stressing something I haven't perhaps stressed enough, which is that these poems, you know, they are literary time bombs. Um, they don't read 
dustily. <laughs> they read explosively. And one of the reasons that they lived explosively, I mentioned this at the very beginning, are the images, the metaphors that they use to really strain the language, but also to strain the mind of the reader to comprehend something that is beyond our comprehension. And I think we often treat ancient deities as kind of quaint figures, like, you know, Zeus with this little, uh, little lightning bolt. But to the ancient people, these gods were figures of absolutely cosmic power. And I really got a sense of what it might be like to, uh, to have a confrontation with ancient divinity <laughs> by reading these poems, because they create a sense of, of awe. And I think in Hilwana is best read alongside other religious poets of the ages that also do crazy, almost avant-garde things with words to express uh, something that is beyond the normal reach of human language. So poets like uh, Gerald Manley Hopkins or Pindar or even Emily Dickinson in her own way. I think that is one way to approach uh, in Hilwana as a deeply moving poet who stretches who stretches our sense of the world and instills a real sense of like uh, chaos, but also awe into our relation to the world. Sophus Hell, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about the poetry of Enheduana. Thank you. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at heymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at heymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.